This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. <laughs> Are you crying? No. Are you crying? Are you crying? <laughs> There's no crying in baseball. <laughs> no crying. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's The Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and after our long weekend and tons of barbecue rib leftovers, what better than a potluck get-together with all of you? Joe's mom's microwave and food, and I'm in charge of entertainment. So today, let's welcome the man behind the New York Times bestseller, Rule One Investing, Phil Town. Plus, as a warm-up act, we'll discuss the fast one that many credit card companies pull on unwary customers. Sure, we'll also make sure to throw out the Haven Lifeline to one lucky caller and, of course, save time for my tasty barbecue-related trivia. Sound good? I thought so. And now, two guys who never need an excuse for a barbecue-related food coma. It's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. Welcome to Wednesday on an abbreviated week for the Stacking Benjamin Show. Hey, everybody. I'm Joe Salcia. I average Joe money on Twitter and here on Westwood One's exclusive chatty financial talk show, where we do headlines, have a guest, talk about all the new fun stuff coming up in the movie business. We're the exclusive for now. It's Mr. Mr. OG. I, I like calling us exclusive just because I figured out the network doesn't have another one. Uh, so nobody told me that we could be exclusive. But if there isn't another one, that makes us exclusive, right? Sounds like another beginning of a great t-shirt idea for Brad. (laughs) Exclusive for now. now. (laughs) What a great day. You had a uh, good Memorial Day weekend. We talked on Monday morning, but um, looks like you made it through. Yep. In-laws. For just a couple of days. In-laws are still alive. I'm I'm a big fan of like uh, four-day work weeks. I like those. I'm not a fan. I'll tell you what I'm not a fan of the five-day work week following the four-day week. Because I get to Thursday and I think, we're not done yet? Like, what's what's going on here? I don't know. But you know, OG, we need that extra day to pay off our student loans. Big thanks to Student Loan Hero. Huh? Huh? I see for, what you did there. Yes. You're not wrong. For supporting Stacking Benjamins. If you're somebody who is wondering about all the things going on right now with interest rates and going back to school and loan deferment on some loans, tons to know about student loans right now. So whether you're headed to college, 
you're in the middle of it and you got to find a way to finish this thing up or you're somebody who is looking at the other side of it. Let's get this stuff paid off quickly. It's all at studentloanhero.com. Great show today. One of our favorite people in the universe, Phil Town, coming down to the basement. I cannot tell a lie. Phil Town, one of my favorite people. The guys, guys, such, I don't know, gentleman, a scholar, a thinker, and he uh, would be coming down to the basement except of the whole quarantine thing. So we're going to call him on mom's shortwave radio, but OG first, we got some headlines. So let's get this party started. Hello darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show. Our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Our first headline comes to us from financial planning. You know, now OG that, that a lot of people Twitter square, they were told that they could work from anywhere. Facebook, Mr. Zuckerberg the other day said, Hey, you don't have to come into the office anymore, but we're giving you a pay cut if you decide to work from home. Nice. Just shows you how the world works, man. Shows you how the world works. But uh, this in from Financial Planning, written by Paul Centropani, 12 affordable housing markets for first-time home buyers. But seriously, OG, if, you, if you're somebody who works in a business where you can work from anywhere, why wouldn't you begin looking at affordability now, especially since the chance of you having to come into the office again with future employers is less today than it was four months ago? If you have the flexibility and it looks like you're going to have that flexibility, I'm, I'll be interested to see the outcome of this as the coronavirus stuff just kind of begins to unravel. That's not the right way to put that. <laughs> it's already unraveled. Yeah, yeah. It begins to be put re-ravel. Put un, un, re re unraveled. Yeah, we prior get to, to being unraveled. How about this? We get to our new normal. We find the new normal. Um, I don't like that phrase. I'm you like the new normal. I, I, I refuse to use that. Uh, it's against. You, you want a phrase that's more of a win-win for us? Got to think. Trying to think a little further say, out of the box. Yeah, if we could just be more synergistic on our decision making, that would be great. But seriously, what I was thinking about was if you have managed to be in an organization that hopefully has continued to be successful and your boss has recognized that your section of your organization has continued to be successful, how do you not make the pitch to say, see, I told you I can stay at home, so I'm going to stay at home from now on? There's going to be lots of statistics about workplace environment changes during this time. I know that there's tons of people in sociology and urban planning doing all kinds of research right now. I can just academics, the, the open floor plan concept in the oh, office destroyed Remember how that was like, that's, that's the en vogue thing. Yes. We used to have a membership at WeWork and that was, you know, we had like a little office, but they had that whole setup where you could just sit out there and just do whatever the hell you wanted to do. Sneeze guard salesman giggling by the day. Exactly. <laughs> We're back, Our honey. Time has come. <laughs> we are back. I'm not just selling at Subway anymore or the buffet. You remember all that buffet business we're losing? We're getting it back. Affordability, Paul writes, remains the top hurdle to buying a home, especially for those taking the plunge for the first time. And, and I'm going to stop right there. I don't think that's a bad thing to have to save up for your first down payment. Do you? Like this idea of making sure that you've got appropriate skin in the game, I think is a great hurdle to realizing how difficult home ownership really is. Yeah. It's not supposed to be easy. And, and when we make it easy, I think sometimes 
that's where our default, big default rate comes from. But anyway, affordability does remain a top hurdle. New buyers who are generally younger typically have lower incomes and a shorter credit history, which means they don't often qualify for the best mortgage rates. A study from NerdWallet notes, while these factors are compounded by higher sticker prices, low supply, and the economic impact of a global pandemic, these buyers stand to be pushed out of the market altogether, the report reads. So searching for a starter home can be difficult in major metropolitan areas, so people are looking in new places. So the top 12 in this list, let's get to it, OG. Number 12, Indianapolis. I have to say, I, uh, you know, I hear central Indiana and initially I thought even a guy from Michigan, I thought, nah, nah, not for me. And then I went to Indianapolis. What an amazing town. Fantastic city. Yeah. Indianapolis, cool town. Absolutely. Great town. Number 11, another fantastic city, Minneapolis, especially for people who enjoy a short summer. Yeah, you're saying that a little tongue in cheek, but you're also being truthful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I am. But Minneapolis, another very, very nice town. Uh, When I was with American Express, we had uh, uh, meetings there a few times. And even during those winter months, downtown Minneapolis, pretty cool with the interlocking habit trail system. Cheese Mm -hmm. at the end of some of those halls. It was pretty interesting. (laughs) Cheese at some of them. (laughs) Number 10 on the list, Birmingham, Alabama, a town I've only been to twice, but what loved it. Thought, uh, again, just a, a nice, fun city. Number nine, surprising to me, is Chicago. Chicago, surprisingly affordable. Doesn't sound like that's right. Affordable Chicago? Hmm. Yeah, now the median list price of a house in Birmingham, Alabama was 256000 uh, Minneapolis, 373,000, Indianapolis, 275,000. You go up to Chicago and it's uh, 316. So it's uh, right in there for affordability. Number eight, Philadelphia. Okay. Philly's a cool town. Yeah, yeah. I like, I'm liking all these so far. Number seven, Baltimore. Our friends at uh, Ortis Academy in, in Baltimore. Dan, who's a friend of the show, a longtime listener I know in the Baltimore area. Number six is Detroit. There's that one house just north of town that got sold very quickly. Exciting. Median list price of a house in, in the Detroit area, 232 Hartford, Connecticut. If you want to live on the East Coast, that's number five. Number four is Buffalo, New York. Now you're down to uh, 200000 for the median list price of a house. Number three is Cleveland. My sister lives in Cleveland. And again, another city I didn't know a lot about until she lived there. Talk about some good restaurants. Cleveland bringing it with some fantastic restaurants. Number two is St. Louis, where the amazing Steve Stewart lives. There's some good chow in St. Louis, too. Mm -hmm. You can live next to him. And number one, one of my favorite cities, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Oh, not the basement. Number one. You been to Pittsburgh? Uh, Yeah, yeah. Been to Pittsburgh. Uh, Don't have any memories of it. So I was younger. I may have a story about Pittsburgh for later. But I think that these cities, you know, a lot of Rust Belt cities in here, OG, Traditional Rust Belt cities on this list. I mean, a few outliers, but generally cities in middle America. And I'm wondering if this uh, this change that we're seeing is going to bring back people to middle America now that you can live. The reality is, is that if you can work from home, you get the freedom to pick. We moved across country. You've done it twice. I think most people just underappreciate exactly how awesome that is. I mean, you could put all your stuff in a moving truck in a day and a half, be in a completely different environment without having to tell anybody. You don't have to get permission 
to move to New Mexico if you want or whatever. You just do it. And that's super powerful. If you've got the flexibility, don't discount it from a financial planning standpoint. Or instead of putting your stuff in a moving truck, just sell it all. Well, that's one way to do it. Our second headline comes to us from CNET. I think of CNET, I think of electronics. But this is written by Oscar Gonzalez over there. Credit card issuers start to lower cardholder limits. Did you see this? Haven't. Uh-oh. Yeah. It appears everybody's tightening their belts during the coronavirus pandemic, even credit card companies. A new survey found that about 25% of card owners in the U.S. had their limits reduced or accounts closed within the past 30 days. You might not have the credit that you thought that you had. This is always the first problem I see when people say, hey, I'm not going to keep an emergency fund, OG. I'm just going to keep a few credit cards open. Happened in 2008. Looks like it's happening again now. Yeah, you can't count on it. And the problem is, is that in very short order, that spirals out of control. And what I mean by that is, let's say you have three three credit cards and they all have a $10,000 available limit. And on one of those, you have 2,500 bucks charged. That might even be your normal spending, by the way, but that's just what's reported. So perfectly fine, right? 2,500 bucks against 30,000, if that's your normal spending. If that card says, yeah, we're going to cut your limit down to 5K. All of a sudden now you're at 50%. And because of everything is run by all these bleepity bleepity computers, all of a sudden the rest of those other cards that you have open go, whoa, what happened? All of a sudden he's using 50% of his credit. Uh Uh-oh, we better reduce our availability to him as well. Dominoes. And now you've got three cards that went from 30,000 to 15, still the same 2,500 bucks. And now your overall utilization has gone up and so now your credit score is going down. So you can't go get more credit. And even though you didn't do anything wrong, there's you nothing did, in that, that. You did you, nothing you different. Payment. You haven't missed a payment. You haven't charged any more. You haven't charged any less, but you look like a bigger risk now to the, to the computers and you have no ability to control when that happens. I, I remember this happening to us in 20 uh, or in 2008, we had some credit card debt and we were aggressively paying it off. He says, gosh, you know what? This is great, but we've got some extra money. Let's pay this off. And if we need to get back to it, we can. And we had, I don't know, I can't remember the numbers, but it was something like, you know, $7,000 on a $10,000 Discover card bill. You know, that's how much we charged. And so we made this huge, like $4,500 payment. You know, if we ever need it again, we can just hit the Discover card again. And they immediately, as soon as we did that, they're like, thank you for the payment. In other news, unrelated, your uh, credit limit now is 3200 We're like, but that's how much we have on the band. We just went from being 70% utilized to 100 We actually got worse. Even though you paid a bunch of money to the card. Even though I put 4500 bucks on it. And it was just so demoralizing. You're like, well, dang, if I'd have known that, I'd just kept my money. So... Especially during Don't that crisis, especially Don't during that crisis. Yeah. How about that? The bank says, hey, thanks for the payment. We're cutting you off. And by the way, if something goes bad for you, don't come running Call to someone us. someone else. Yeah. Don't come running back to us. It's, yeah. it's and, so and, and nowadays, dangerous. All of these cards are, uh, when you sign up for them, you're giving them permission to run your credit multiple times. Just go look at your credit report and see how many times, you know, American Express runs your credit. They probably look at our credit report twice a month, I bet. So I'm automated, of course, I'm a fan of when I'm setting up my cash reserve or maybe once a year looking at a place like magnify money, as an example, 
to see that I get a good interest rate, but I get frustrated when I see in online forums fairly constantly people comparing interest rates between 1.2, 1.3. Oh, I'm getting 1.4. I mean, $10,000 OG between 1.2 and 1.4 is no money. I don't want to be stuck making those decisions. I want to make the big decisions. Having a, a cash reserve and putting it aside, I think is the important lesson here and maximizing your interest rate, which by the way, the reason I bring that up is the reason why a lot of people say they don't want to have an emergency fund is because look at the low interest rate. I think you're playing the wrong game, don't you? The way that you want to look at this is that the risk that you take is inversely correlated to the return that you can get. So you have no risk and this is total safe and secure money. Of course, you're not going to get any return on it. And okay, fine. So you you pick the 1.31 and it drops down to 1.2. It's not the end of the world. You're not trying to beat inflation. You're in the ballpark of being correct. And you're right. People do get frustrated and they kind of screw around with this and trying to make $10 decisions. Meanwhile, uh, they should have 20000 instead of 10000 <laughs> know, They're not making the $10,000 decision. They're making the, the $10 decision. But it is what it is. You can't have it both ways. You can't have a great interest rate on your savings account and a really low mortgage rate on your mortgage. And you can't have the safety and security of immediate access to your cash and the opportunity for it to go up a whole bunch. Those things have to be inversely correlated. So it's boring. It's supposed to be the bottom parts of the pyramid. Those are the crappy ones. Nobody looks at the first row of bricks in a pyramid and go, Oh yeah, that's amazing engineering right there. But then people ask, <laughs> why don't I just get rid of the boring parts? If it's so boring, why don't I just get rid of that? Well, if I'm allowed a further pyramid analogy, thank you for the <laughs> setup. You can't put, you know, you can't do it upside down. Because if you don't have the foundation, right, it, it, you know, everything screws up. All these, all this stuff associated with, with personal finance, it's meant to be boring. If you're having fun doing this or if it's exciting, you're probably doing it wrong, you know. So get your boring cash reserve. Yeah, I think that's uh, lesson number one. Lesson number two, boss says you don't have to head back to work. Maybe it's time to look at some affordable housing elsewhere in the United States. Could be an exciting time for you and life's little adventure. Well, if you're not familiar with Phil Town, he is a multiple-time uh, New York Times and uh, Wall Street Journal best-selling author. Rule One Investing is his top hit. He also is a gentleman who has a fantastic podcast with his daughter that we absolutely love. Phil and Danielle have Invest Ed. He has always been a disciple of Warren Buffett. You look at uh, Phil's track record as an investor, it is outstanding. The interesting thing that I like about Phil is that while many, many, many people talk about efficient markets, you can't find good trades. You can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. Phil has always found a way to be a guy looking in a different direction for his security. So get ready to hear something which isn't the same thing you hear every place else. Phil Town. I'm my dead shortwave. And here he is. Man, I wish we were hanging out in the basement like last time, but it's our good friend Phil Town back. How are you, man? I'm really good, Joe. It's great to see you. Now that we're on the radio, the shortwave, I, I just want to know if I have to say over. 
over. Yeah, at the end of every set, we'll we'll just annoy the hell out of people. Over. Do you think that's annoying? Over. Wait, I was supposed to speak next. Over. <laughs> Sorry. You're over. That's right. I said over. See, I, I messed it up right away. I don't even have it. Joe, Joe, come in. You're five by five. Talk to me. I am so glad you're here, though, because, you know, not to get serious right away, but we've seen what's gone on in the economy. You're always watching the numbers. I was watching a video that you and Danielle did a couple weeks ago. I want to start with this. You've always said, Phil, that you should listen to smart people. And I'm wondering, when there's chaos all around us like now, who do you identify as those smart people we should be listening to? And how do you kind of, like, what's the Town filter about who we should be listening to and who we shouldn't be listening to during all this stuff? Yeah, well, first, uh, you honestly did not send me that question. <laughs> I don't think I <laughs> sent you so any questions. This is a really, you didn't send me any questions. <laughs> and yet, I have an answer. This is something I've thought about a lot for my own students and and so I've directed everybody to two people I think are really phenomenal. The first one is Warren Buffett and what he's saying about what's going on out there. And the second one is Ray Dalio. They're not saying exactly the same things, but I, I can give you a brief rundown on, on what I think they're saying. And what I would do if, if I wanted to kind of get up on the speed with these guys is I would go to a YouTube video of somebody who's recorded Buffett's last annual report thing that he does once a year and he just did it a week ago. And that was really interesting because it was very different Warren Buffett than I've ever seen. And then uh, Ray Dalio, just Google Ray Dalio principles, and you'll get to his website where he is posting up on LinkedIn and on his own website, a full series of basically what's coming. And Ray, if listeners aren't aware, is the best, one of the best investors in the world. He averaged 18% per year now for 36 years. And he runs about a $200 billion fund. So it's one of the biggest in the world called Bridgewater. He's a massively respected macro investor. So he doesn't invest the way Buffett does. He looks at what's going on all over the world and he places his bets and their bets into different buckets and tries to make sure that he's kind of understands the whole picture worldwide and where things are going as best as it could be understood and he is putting out a series. So we'll start with him for a second. He's put out a series now where essentially what he's saying is that we are at the end of a long credit cycle that's lasted about 100 years. And that at the end of these long credit cycles, what happens is you've built up so much debt and so many issues with regard to preventing the last problems from becoming terminal that you finally arrive at a place where basically your problems are terminal. You have to have some giant recalibration happen. And it usually happens in the form of a depression that's driven by currency devaluations. He points out that every single currency in the history of the world has gone through this. And um, the United States dollar has gone through this. We went through it in the 1930s. And that effectively we are in the 1930s now, both in terms of what's going on with the stock market uh, what's going on with the Federal Reserve response to the stock market and the the federal government's response to it all. And if you want to calibrate where things are going, that's a really good model. Just look at 1931, 32, and it'll help you anticipate what problems may be coming in the near future. So I hear the economic numbers come out, and I believe that, and I've been listening to some Ray Dalio myself, but then I see the stock market right now. And, you know, we, we, we at Greenspan 
several years ago, talk about irrational exuberance. And we've got a stock market that seems to be trying to tell us right now, Phil, 12 months from now, we're okay, bud. Everything's going to be just fine. That's exactly right. what it's trying to tell us. But the stock market is, is really actually extremely bad at looking down the road 12 months because of the nature of the job of a fund manager. And the fund managers now run about 85% of the money in the stock market. So we're talking about the management class that is putting their money in and taking the money out, trying to protect their careers. So think about the job of a fund manager that has $20 billion to manage. And most of that is pension money, insurance fund money. In other words, it's professional money that ultimately comes from little guys, right? Like you and me. And then we, we put it in our 401k and it ends up in the hands of a pension fund manager who is a pro at picking people to manage that money on a day-to-day basis. And now he's looking at you, Joe, and he's saying, okay, I'm going to give you a hundred million. It's a pittance, I know, but (laughs) take it and manage it because I like your track record. I like what you do. And I'm looking across the broad spectrum of 50 managers I'm giving money to, and you fill a gap. Um, But there's a lot of guys who compete with you in your gap that you fill. Let's say you're a long-term manager of money with your strategy. And now you're not keeping up with that peer group on a quarter to quarter basis. And Joe, after six months of you not keeping up, I'm taking the money out. And there goes the 100 million. And every fund manager knows that's the deal. So, you know, the the world of fund managers is littered with cautionary tales of fund managers who try to be heroic, beat the market, do great, become the next Warren Buffett. And, you know, the heap of fired fund managers is littered with these guys. Everybody has learned their lesson. Just keep up with your peer group. And what that means is you need to follow a few rules. The first rule of keeping up with your peer group is don't fight the Fed. So here comes this catastrophic drop in the market, 37% down in a matter of literally a month and shocking everybody. And then comes the Federal Reserve to step into the gap and pour money. Literally, the view on Wall Street right now is unlimited money, whatever it takes money. Yeah, it is surreal. It's like Steve Munition's out there with a stack of hundreds, a stack of Benjamins, just, you know, bam, 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 (laughs) just just giving them to everybody. Right. In 2008, they saw how important it was to come in uh, relatively quickly with $4 trillion and lower the interest rates, but it wasn't as quickly as they could have. And as a result, an entire segment of, of the financial world froze up credit froze everywhere. And it was a near disaster. Now they're anticipating it. So here comes this big crash and they are on it immediately to shore up the credit markets, put money in the hands of spend people who can spend it back up state unemployment with federal unemployment insurance, hand out money to corporations to have them keep people working. So they're actually anticipating a gigantic black hole of capital disappearing here. And they're trying to fill that before it ever goes away, in essence. So they're being very super aggressive, more aggressive than any other central bank in the whole world. And I think that's to our benefit. I'm, I'm cheering them on. Yeah. Go for it. Because sure. otherwise, we're going to have the wealthy standing there wondering why there's a revolution. <laughs> All these, everybody else is like, I don't have a job, Jack, and I'm going to come and take your food. Well, and to your point, somebody said the other day, they said this word stimulus. This isn't stimulus. These are handouts. We are giving, yes. we're not stimulating anything. We are keeping people alive by printing more money. We're desperately printing money in order to prevent 
a spiral into a depression. And what they're really trying to pre prevent, Joe, is fear from gaining the upper hand to where people are starting to make emotional decisions about their money, their, their jobs, their, their families. And that's what happened in the 30s. It got very emotional because four or 5,000 banks went out of business taking your entire life savings with them. There was no federal guarantees. People were terrified. And that fear was extremely hard for Roosevelt and that whole, the entire federal government couldn't get us out of the fear and literally took World War II to have something worse that we all sort of started to rally around. But the fear was so enormous. People were afraid to move. And what you're seeing today is a really aggressive attempt to prevent that fear from starting up. And so I, I applaud that. But that said, it, it is creating its own set of issues, right? I mean, when you have cancer, you got to take chemotherapy. So was, when you take too much chemotherapy, you're dead. <laughs> to use a little less drastic uh, analogy. I remember in Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, you pick up one end of the stick, the other end comes with it, right? The other yes. end of the stick is going to come. Now, the, the other guy that I would love for people to keep up on is Warren Buffett. And he had a meeting a week ago where effectively what he said is, this stick, I don't know which end I'm picking up. This is so confusing right now. And so many possibilities are happening because of the impossibility of knowing how long is this coronavirus going to keep hammering us? Are we at the peak right now? Are we about to have multiple peaks as we start to open up? We don't really know the long-term impact of shutting down economies around the world. We're going to, we're going to find out, but he doesn't know. He's basically said, look, my obligation is to keep Berkshire Hathaway a Fort Knox of corporations. And so he's sitting on $135 billion and he's not spending any. He didn't even buy back his own stock when it got down to about 175 a share, which by, by his own account is a bargain. So he is sitting there. And what we don't know from Buffett is whether he's sitting there leaning toward a view that says this is going to get a lot worse in terms of stock prices before it gets better. And those worse, the, the stock prices may be worse because so many corporations are going to have really deep problems that can't be solved by government help. If that's why he's sitting on 135 billion, by the way, that's three times more money than he's ever had in his life that he's holding back. And in 2008, he was saying things like, hey, you know, America's great. You want to get in there right now. Yeah, you want to buy was, these things when they're Yeah, cheap. he was doubling down. Yeah, double down, jump on it. He put in $40 billion into the markets. Uh, today, he's saying very, very clearly, I'm not putting in a penny. I'm sitting on it. I haven't seen anything attractive at attractive prices yet which effectively means the market was too overvalued. Even a 37% drop didn't put things on sale. Or that the potential here is a lesson from his teacher, Ben Graham, who was investing through the 1930s and in 1929 had cash out of the market brilliantly and in 1930 put it back in. And Ben's experience was it doesn't feel any better to put your money in when the market's down 30% and then it goes down 90% than when you just leave it in and it goes down 90%. It feels just as bad. Yeah. So I think Buffett's lesson from his teacher is maybe, and this is kind of reading between the lines, is maybe be patient here. It's going to get bad, and it's going to get bad in terms of stock prices going way down. Not recession down, but depression down. And that's kind of the same thing that Dalio is hinting at, that we're. he's already said it. He didn't hint around. He said, we're in a depression. And, you know, you might want to be thinking about investing like you're in a depression. Good, good news, huh? I mean, this is the cheery. Well, this is funny because I'm watching this awesome video with you and Danielle. 
you're walking through very similar territory that you and I are covering. Uh, you know, not a ton has changed. First time in a long time, not a ton has changed in two weeks, just more doom and gloom. But you follow this up then, Phil, with saying, so all of a sudden the sun peeks out because all of a sudden I hear Phil Town say, the next two years are going to have some of the most amazing opportunities that people could ever see. So explain what we just got done talking about and how we get out of this Mad Max beyond Thunderdome <laughs> existence <laughs> that, you, that you just described to me. Right. So the other thing that Buffett said that's right to that point, Joe, is that America will prevail in this. And what he means by that is that America has tremendous intrinsic qualities. There are some countries in the world that share some of these qualities or maybe maybe even have maybe a few more of them. But no other country in the world has the economic resources of the United States. And when you add that to the qualities of the people who live here, the kind of entrepreneurial spirit, the qualities that the country has of the people who are here to step out of the box, to find a good solution is extraordinary. And many of those people run public companies. And those public companies have resources. They're getting more resources from the Federal Reserve. So if it were possible to pick a handful, let's say, of astonishingly good companies that should do well, not necessarily well in a depression, but will come out of a depression stronger than they went in, then we have an opportunity here that is unlike anything any of us has seen in our lifetimes. The last time there was this opportunity was in the 1930s. And that is an opportunity when there are fortunes lost to be part of the group where there are fortunes made. And that's the group we want to be in. And the, the, the guy that taught Warren made an absolute fortune, billions of dollars in, in today's currency in the 1930s through World War II, and he finally retired in 1955. And he did it just following some very simple principles of investing that Buffett's been teaching for 50 years, but which I think many people feel like are too difficult or, or outside the reach of an ordinary person or, you know, Buffett's a genius and what he does doesn't apply to me. And you hear that a lot in the financial services industry, right? It's like, well, that's Buffett, you know, that's not the rest of us. But I don't think Buffett thinks like that. I think he thinks if you apply yourself that this isn't a game where 160 IQ beats 110 IQ. It's not, it's not that kind of a game. It's a game where if you understand what a good business looks like that will be anti-fragile in a depression, that it'll benefit from a depression ultimately by having its competitors go away, by being the, the last man standing kind of in its industry and come out stronger than ever. Those kinds of companies are going to be on sale in a way in the next two years that we have never seen. You're literally going to be able to pick up, if it's like the 1930s, you know, $10 bills for a dollar. And when those $10 bills go back up to their real value, you'll have made a thousand percent in some relatively short period of time is, is kind of how the numbers work there, Joe. I want to ask you, I want to ask you about two things about that. Number one is, you know, I had somebody, I've had lots of people reach out to me on Twitter and other ways and, and talking about, Hey, airlines, cruise ships, you're not talking about airlines when you're talking about this diving and no. going in and buy picking up some Delta airlines. You're not going to see Phil town uh, swooping no. in and, and, and buying that stuff. No, no cruise lines, even though Saudi Arabia is jumping on it. No, those are speculative investments. You have to be gambling to do that. And we certainly don't want to gamble with money. I, I can't afford to lose, right? I don't want to lose the money we built over a lifetime. And so what we have to look for are companies that are not being damaged by 
this whole pandemic and the shutdown that's going on, we want to look for companies that are being strengthened by all of this. They're actually in a better position long-term over time. And that takes a very specific kind of company. And strangely, you can see some of them just take off. Yeah. You know, while, while Southwest Airlines is going down, we can't buy those guys because we don't know what the future holds for them. And airlines are classical chapter 11 bankruptcy companies. They, they feel fully justified just going and wiping out their shareholders and starting over and have done so many times. The only exception is Southwest Airlines out there right now. So we don't know what the future holds for them. And, we don't, and because we don't know that, we don't know what value to put on them. And because we don't know the value, we don't know what, what on sale looks like. And if we don't know that, we can't buy it. We want to go to a garage sale, but we want to buy things we understand, right? Not just because buy somebody's gold jewelry, you know, or gold chain. We're going to buy the gold chains down there at Miami Beach on 80% off sale here <laughs> for these gold chains. And if you don't know the value of the gold chains, you think you're getting a bargain, right? <laughs> Not realizing you can buy those at Walmart for half the price you just bought it for <laughs> on the Miami Beach. So understanding the value of what you're buying is just fundamentally doing this. And that's not that hard. So, I mean, if you're willing to dedicate a little bit of time to learning this, you're completely able. And here's something else that I think is really important, by the way, because I know you're a former Ameriprise guy. So you've, you've done some of this kind of stuff, right? A, a long time ago, my friend, but yes. Yeah, a long time ago. Yes. Yeah. Yes. But there's, there's this idea of diversification, right? Sure. And, and that'll, well, the, that'll protect you. Well, and that was my next question because just before this hit, not to cut you off, but I think we're going the same way, which is, you know, Dr. Michael Burry uh, was talking about how an issue with indexing is that right now it's hard as hell to figure out the price. And as more people index pricing becomes really, really difficult. And it sounds like this is kind of where you're going as well. Exactly. Right. What Dr. Burry is talking about is that indexes, when you purchase an index uh, in your 401k and thus diversify across the entire, let's say S&P 500 index, you have 500 companies ballpark, and now you own all of them and you're diversified. You're feeling very, very safe relative to trying to pick stocks yourself, but there's a catch. And, and the catch is that when you do that, the people running that index, SPY, let's say, have to go out and buy a pro rata share of all of those companies. They're not looking at the value of those businesses at all. Nothing to do with the value. So if everybody indexes and everybody buys the index, it just keeps going up. It, it, there's no connection to the cash flow coming off of these companies whatsoever. In other words, it becomes like a Picasso or a, a, or a gold bar or something. You suddenly have the market being just valued at whatever price people pay for it. And since they're buying the index, they just keep paying more. But that turns out to be a problem. And we've seen that with real estate in the last decade. And that is when everybody's buying something that is, in fact, a cash-producing asset, eventually somebody wakes up to the notion that this thing is massively and ridiculously overpriced and that I'm not getting enough for my money for the risk I'm taking, putting my money in the index. That is the return on my cash for putting my money there is too low. And this is what happened in real estate. It, like Vancouver real estate got to a point where people were buying Vancouver real estate and getting a 1% yield on their purchase price. Right. And they finally realized, you know what? this is way too high. And so they stop buying it and bam, the real estate prices go down. So th the bubble is there in the market. And, and maybe the best way to, to look at that bubble is um, the Wilshire index 
compared to the GDP of the United States, which is a, a ratio tracked by the Federal Reserve in St. Louis called, if you wanted to look at it, you'd Google Fred, F-R-E-D, and then Wilshire GDP. And it will show you that um, as long as I've been tracking this, the average relationship between the market, which is the Wilshire index, and the revenue of America, which is GDP, was about 80%. That is the, the market was priced at about 80% of our GDP. So if our GDP is 10 trillion, then the market's pricing itself at about 8 trillion, and it varies around that market, that market price. Today, it's at 178%. So it's at more than double what would be historically considered normal. And that's purely being driven by index investing being pushed in there as a result of having nowhere else to go. There's, you know, go buy a bond at, at zero interest rate, right? So this market is vastly, in my view, and I think in Buffett's view, it's vastly overpriced. It's an accident waiting to happen. And the accident finally happened. And now you're going to see the market reprice itself as people get out of those indexes. You have the opposite thing happen, which is nobody's checking price against value. And now the indexes have to sell off all those stocks in order to give you your money back. In an indiscriminate way. In an indiscriminate way, which is how it can move 37% in a month. Yeah. I mean, that's unbelievable volatility. And then back up in a matter of a few days. Unbelievable volatility as these indexes are just shoving money in or taking money out. So um, I think if you if you look at all of the different rational views of a market, the ultimate view of a market that makes sense to me is that a thing is worth some relationship to the cash it gives you back, right? I mean, if, if, you, if you buy a, a, a house to rent to somebody, you, you have to look at it in terms of your cash flow. At some point, you have to say, well, that's just too expensive. I'm not going to get enough rent back in here to, to use my money that way to justify the risk of a house versus putting my money in a T-bill. And so that relationship has been torn apart now. And it's about to go through, a, a, I think, a very significant repricing. And when that happens, you're going to have bargains. Because then, as you have exuberance of the market always goes up, you can't worry, you just put the money in there. You have the opposite thing occur, which is, my God, all, all of my retirement savings are going away in, this, in, this, in my 401k. I've got to get the money out. And when that money starts coming out, again, the indexes are going down. And this is what Burry's concerned about. They're yeah. very volatile. Um, and when that happens you have fear start to rise and then it goes through past the point of reasonable pricing as fear starts to tell everyone, get out, get out, get out. It goes right on past that into some unreasonable pricing in the other direction. And that I think is what Buffett is kind of signaling he's waiting for. Wow. So if we make this actionable and, and actually before we get to that, I should explain to people because we we're talking about this, a Dr. Michael Burry character, all you got to think of is Christian Bale in the big short. Yeah. And, and there you go. Exactly. If you didn't see the big short, go see it. Otherwise, just think Christian Bale and you're good. I'm sure. The, the uh, or, or maybe not. To put a point on it, he made like a billion dollars, right? With a bunch of people screaming at him, give me my money back, you moron. He still went and made him a billion dollars. And Burry is absolutely a guy that I track. I, I think if you want to watch somebody who's a brilliant investor, who might leave you puzzled about why he's doing certain things. Uh, he's, he's a guy to watch. He's fun to watch. His feelings about water, we can save that for a different show, but also fascinating. Just fascinating. Absolutely. He and Ted Turner, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ted, Ted's a big water owner. Uh, yeah. I, oh, yeah. Yeah. 
there are some people listening. I'm just thinking about somebody out walking the dog, taking the daily, got to get out of the house, <laughs> walk, <laughs> listening to you and I chat. And they're going, oh, I don't know this town guy, but he just sounds like a really, he sounds like one of those active investors. An active investor lately means means horrible to the indexer, right? We've had that. We've, in. we've had that in and out. over and over and over. And, and people missed, if, if they didn't hear you and I talk before, let's be clear, man. You really are not an no. active investor. You, you're, no, I'm, I'm a sit on my butt investor capable of sitting on my thumbs and doing absolutely nothing for as much as two or three years at a time in cash, waiting patiently. And I would say I get very active sometimes. I'm basically passive aggressive with investing. Yeah, that's a good that's a good way to put it. Very, very, very passive until the market puts a bunch of things I want to own on sale. And then I'm very aggressive about loading up the truck. So no, I, I don't invest often. Yeah. But I do invest aggressively sometimes. Yeah. The rule one way you have yeah. a set of signals, really filters that you follow to right. determine which companies are the companies that are in your wheelhouse. And then you wait for those to hit. So you, my understanding of your day, Phil, is this, and, and, and I'm probably making it easier than it seems. You, Melissa, wake up, you go have some breakfast, you go look at the computer, you look and see what your companies do. Maybe, I don't know if it's every day, if it's once a week, you look and see if any of your signals have hit, and then you go out and you spend your day with the horses. Yeah, pretty close. Uh, the, the big difference is I probably spent three hours reading, Yeah, sitting here and just reading about companies I want to own. For example, if I want to own a railroad company because I see Warren Buffett buying one and I'm curious... And because my grandfather worked for the railroad, my uncle worked for the railroad. So I'm like, hmm, that might be something I could come to understand a little bit. I'll go on Amazon and I'll buy 30 books on railroads. And I'll just kind of start reading them and, and uh, just pour through them until either I realize oh, the railroad thing is way too hard for me. <laughs> or, uh, or occasionally I'll, I'll look and say, oh, no, I'm, I kind of get this intermodal freight thing. This is cool. I, I think I understand now why Warren is buying this, you know, and. And uh, then I can start making some sense out of whether whether I could could buy into that company. And I'll do that. I try to make it a routine to do three or four hours of reading a day. And uh, I read Melissa to sleep at night. She I, I will read. The, she actually asked me to read the 10 Ks to her. Does she really? <laughs> oh, yeah. Because they put her out. I mean, she is like. I was say a 10K puts me seconds. out. <laughs> 30 seconds, she's gone. It's better than any Ambien. Uh, <laughs> there's nothing like reading a 10K to just drop uh, it. If you yeah. were a mutual fund guy, you could just pick up a prospectus and you're good to go. You're good to go right there, you know, <laughs> gone. That is so, so other than the reading part, yeah, you got it right. I don't, I don't spend much time on the market. We, I do do some cash flow related trades where, I don't have a company. I, I, I have a company I want to buy, but it's not at the margin of safety price. And I will, I will do some options around that to try to get it at that margin of safety price. And if I don't get it, I'm making, I'm making cash. And that's a lot of fun to do that. But you're basically right. I'd spend, I mean, I don't spend hardly any time actually investing that that's yeah. 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 I think people I have this view of much. an active investing and what they think yeah. it should be. You're sitting at the computer all day, pulling your head, hair out. And that's not no. the fill town lifestyle. No, I, I, we went into cash pretty aggressively in 2007. I went on CNBC and on uh, closing bell and told Maria we're going to cash. And she was like, I thought you were, 
a value investor and what are you doing going to cat right so i got the other end of it from her and um, i said no i mean we're we, everything's overpriced i can't find anything i really like and i'm seeing big guys leaving the market and one of the indicators we've got and we went out 18 months we just nothing and just camped out and i'm back i'm back in that mode now i'm feeling pretty comfortable sitting on my butt go and watch the horses get born. This is good. I was going to say, it's got to be a little cathartic. I mean, when you turn on the news and everything else is so bad all day. Honestly, um, I feel torn because I was fortunate enough to get an education on, on the concept, like Nicholas Taleb, the concept of anti-fragile. By the way, I think one of the best books you can read about both structuring your life and and your investments is anti-fragile by, by Nick Taleb who's an NYU professor, but also an, he was a former options trader and he really knows his business. And his concept is exactly Buffett's concept for investing in my, and how I try to follow these guys, which is to own things that will get better in a really tough situation. Own stuff that's going to do well when it hits the fan. Um, and that's what Talib means by anti-fragile. Not just something that will survive, but something that will actively become bigger and better coming out the other end. And that's what we try to target for our investments. I was on my morning walk today, listening to uh, Tim Ferriss talk to Nick Kokonis from uh, Alinea, the big Chicago restaurant and talking about trying to revive restaurants. And he was talking about Taleb this morning and how important and how, how some of the stuff that Taleb wrote 10 years ago, 15 years ago is playing out just completely playing out right now. Yes, it is. What you're seeing is the, at least in the financial services world, is kind of the death of uh, efficient market theory, uh, which Taleb has been ringing the death knell on for for several years now. He wrote Black Swan and he wrote Fool by Randomness, yeah, um, both of which are pretty solid uh, criticisms of of efficient market theory. Efficient market theory, of course, as you know, just is everything is priced properly in the market all the time, because what what moron would sell something for a hundred dollars that's worth two hundred? Right, not realizing that in the other market, the academics not realizing that the market's a scary place, yeah. and that people do emotional things all the time, especially when they're trying to protect their fund manager career. Yeah. So the result of that is there are opportunities for us, and if we are an anti-fragile type investor, where we are waiting patiently for those opportunities to appear and not trying to chase the market, we're trying, as Warren's partner Charlie Munger says, we're we're trying to be patient. He says, because we make money when we wait. We don't make money when we buy. We don't make money when we sell. It's it's all about the waiting. And for the last year, this has been very hard to wait. I mean, it's like the market's really priced high. It's going up. People uh, feel, you know, like, oh, I'm missing out, right? You got you all yeah. that scenario going. Yeah, yeah. And you're going you're gonna to have a lot of you out there feeling that right now. Like, if I don't, if I'm not in this market, here we go again, I'm going to miss out. But I would just caution you that this time it might be different. And you might want to really be careful with money you can't afford to lose right now. Where can you teach people more, Phil? Where do we go? Well, we just we just virtualized our workshop. Up to this point, we've been happy to have people come in on full scholarships to attend our workshop in Atlanta. And we did it live once a month. And now we've gone virtual and we're doing once a month a virtual workshop. You can get to it by going to ruleoneinvesting.com and uh, just follow the links to it. We sell them out, and, and what we're doing online is we're, we're going through two and a half days of pretty intense training. We have different instructors doing different parts of the training, and then every hour or so, uh, we have you with a coach that's going to be working with you in a small group of about eight to 10 people, 
and working through the exercises from the education you just got. And by the end of that three days, we will have started you on structuring a watch list of companies that you understand and understand why someone like Warren Buffett or me might be buying them. The last time we did this in this kind of economic environment, Joe, was in our first workshop we did in Singapore in June of 2009. And I had just come off of CNBC, right? Doing a, a series there. And so these students were in perfect timing. And we did, we built a watch list. And that's what we do at this virtual workshop. We'll build a watch list of 10 companies from these students, each of them trying to find one company in that three-day period. And we'll build this watch list of what we think are our students' best view of anti-fragile companies. That watch list from Singapore in the 10 years that followed, it did 1,254% return. Holy cow. Stunning, right? Holy I mean, cow. Uh, $10,000 would have become $125,000. $100,000 became $1.2 When the market, which was stunning during that same 10-year period, turned that $10,000 into $30,000. So the difference is not exponential, but it's damn big, right? It's big. And, and it's worth, I think, taking a look to see if you can do this. I think it's worth it. So if you want to join, join us, we fill them up fast. So, so yep. jump in there. We're, we're deep into June at this point and headed for July. We will link in the show notes at uh, stackingbenjamins.com. And I'd also be remiss if we didn't talk about the podcast, man, where, where, where you and Danielle oh, have, have a where, ton where of fun. My daughter beats me up. She right? does beat and, you and up on a weekly basis. I love that yeah. when Phil, I love when Phil starts to rant, like she goes like, dad, you're <laughs> ranting. I'm pulling you back. Or you accuse her of wanting to argue. And she's like, I don't want to argue. Okay, you're right. I want to argue. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> See, I made a mistake. Uh, if, uh, this was a mistake. She she went to college at uh, a really good liberal arts college and got a degree in comparing religions. And then she looked around for a job. And there were no jobs available to compare religions. Imagine that. That's strange. And so then she went to Oxford and got a master's degree, not in something useful, but in religious comparisons this time. And stunned to find out there were no jobs for Oxford <laughs> master's degrees. <laughs> and then she came to me and said, Dad, I think I better go to law school and get a real job. And I said, Great. So she goes to NYU Law. And this was the mistake. NYU Law taught her how to argue unemotionally and basically take apart my arguments. Oh, no. Like just yeah. Disassemble my arguments. And this is completely unfair, frankly. And so <laughs> she... <laughs> I was used to having a daughter who was a religious major, you know? Like, and, damn and, it. Yeah, I could say what I want. She'd be like, oh. And uh, no, no more, man. Now she just climbs up my smokestack. So it's just. She does. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we discuss investing and she will, uh, will be on the side of all of you who are skeptical. She's right there with you. Yeah. That's invest ed. And wherever you're listening to us, just put in invest ed and, and you'll find us. And usually by the way, on the charts, I notice we're always like right next to each other too. We're always, we are, we always just we, hang we, out we're with really proud of you guys hanging in there with us. <laughs> we do our best. <laughs> I struggle. I, I high five Cheryl, my spouse every day. And I'm like, look, we're still next to Phil town. Hey, <laughs> great catching up, man. And stay healthy. Well, thanks, man. I, I appreciate you and you're, you're fantastic. And I listen to you guys and you're wonderful. And so we'll return the favor. We got to get you out there again. Oh yeah. We will mess it up. Oh, good. Absolutely. <laughs> fantastic, Joe. 
Hey, all you barbecue fans, it's Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. This whole crew's worked up an appetite bringing you the first half of this show, and it looks like we're all ready to chow down on some delicious BBQ. Joe's mom's warmed up the brisket, the ribs, and sausage, and the baked beans, and the coleslaw. <laughs> hey, Joe, how about that coleslaw, huh? No, I, I think it's still pretty damn funny. And check out the old-fashioned cherry Kool-Aid and apple pie. But get this, in just a moment, I'm going to lay on the team my amazing piece of a resistance. Before I do that, though, let's chew on today's trivia question. What is the most popular type of food U.S. consumers use for grilling? I'll be back with your answer faster than you can salivate over my soon-to-be-announced mouth-watering main course. Mm. I was talking to a friend of mine at the local Detroit TV station, OG, and she was telling me about how their ratings are through the roof. And during the whole coronavirus scare, people looking for community and not looking for the national news, looking to see what's happening in my backyard, looking for the connection that we really don't feel anymore. And one of the frustrating pieces of this is uh, the local sportscaster every day salutes another high school sports team that was really good and didn't get to play. And so going through all the list of seniors and the uh, list of uh, these kids, but time still moves on, as you know, and that means that maybe college is around the corner. And if so, if you are going for an education and you can't pay cash for it, that means you're going to have student loans. Don't just have student loans, have a student loan strategy and the place to get that strategy is Student Loan Hero. When you go to Student Loan Hero, what you'll find is calculators, quizzes to see how much you know, things you really must read before jumping into any student loans, all the products that are out there, the different types of student loans. You want to know what you're getting into beforehand so you know how to get out. College is about two things. It's about learning, but it also, if you're going into debt, can be about return on investment. If you look at colleges and investment, well, then certainly you want to look at refinancing opportunities, lowering your payments. Maybe it's going to take some debt forgiveness because times have been really hard on you now, like they have a lot of Americans. Income-driven repayment, parent plus loans, and even looking into defaults and delinquency, how those work. If you have any questions about student loans, the number one place we look, Student Loan Hero. Head to studentloanhero.com for more. Hey there, trivia fans. It's your barbecue chef, Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And I know you've been waiting on pins and needles to hear about my incredible, delectable, some even say edible mystery dish. Well, remember a couple months back when I had the brilliant idea to sell my scrumptious possum burger to Burger King? For some reason, not explained to me. BK passed on my brilliance. It's a total mystery. But I've been tweaking the recipe ever since. You heard it. Old Doug's about to be redeemed, people. Possum is on the menu today, and I got to admit, boy, is it tasty. And now, before I head off to make everyone's taste buds sour, <laughs> I misread the script there. I meant to say, before I make everyone's taste buds sore, here is today's trivia answer. Question was, what is the most popular type of food U.S. consumers use for grilling? Well, according to the impossible to pronounce Statistica, Statistica 
Facebook.com. A whopping 72% of grillers have grilled up some dogs. Hot dogs, that is. But coming up with a very close second, 71% have reported grilling up some delicious steaks. Don't worry, investors. In 2021, I am confident Possum will take its rightful place on top of that list. I'm off to delight some palates. See ya. Yeah, I'm not going near that. Is it possum or opossum? Because that may make a difference. Oh. One of them is a delicacy. <laughs> and the other's uh, sleeping on the side of the road all the time with his feet know. in the air. Horrible. Ugh. No bueno. I, probably not for me. Might be for you. Hey, he's cooking it up. So get yourself a little something, something. Delicioso. And I wonder how much of that is cultural. You know, I wonder if there's cultures where possum is, is a, uh, a delicacy. Maybe he'll find the Burger Kings over in that area. We'll take them. But these, uh, these Kings aren't taking any of that. Hey, let's uh, throw out the Haven Lifeline, distract ourselves, tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what I value first. If I got to eat possum, it's probably a lot of ketchup. I value a lot of ketchup. Oh, gee, maybe some salt. Yeah, you put a little mayonnaise on that, a little mustard, maybe some pickles for the crunch. That way you don't know what kind of crunch. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I think I just threw up in my mouth. That's <laughs> It's actually, you value your loved ones and your time. It's why they've made buying quality term life insurance actually simple. I can see the next email from Brittany at Haven Life. Hey, uh, don't mention possum when you're talking about Haven Life, please. Uh, head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now for a free quote. Super simple application, getting simpler every day. Prices are affordable. All policies issued by their parent company, Mass Mutual, which of course is more than 160 years old. Today, we're going to turn to our Facebook group, The Basement, uh, for our Haven Lifeline. Because, oh, gee, we got this question in there that was addressed to the group, but I thought it would be really interesting for our uh, larger listening community. Jason wrote, I spoke with my father about his end of life plans. It seems that his retirement plan is to either work until he dies or move in with me if he's forced to retire. I'd rather not. I moved across the country for a reason, but I don't think he'll have anyone else financially capable of taking care of him. Even though I have a decade or more, he's 60. What should I do in preparation? Man, is that is that a difficult question? But uh, thanks to Jason for bringing that up because... Planning this stuff early, OG, I think is answer number one. Well, this has been something that has come up. We did a thing for the last six weeks or so, these 30-minute calls with people just to chat, you know, about whatever. And uh, this has been a common a common question. Some of one of the top questions anyway has been like some variation of, I'm trying to get my own stuff together. And then I've got this other person in my family who is not participating. And that other person sometimes is a parent. The thing is, is that you can't, you just can't force people to do stuff. You know, I mean, you can't force them to save. You can't force them to invest. And if, if dad's 60 and he doesn't want to do that, you know, or can't for whatever reason, you know, nothing you are going to talk about is going to make him do it. Um, if you're thinking about it from your perspective in terms of like, how do you prepare for it? Cause we're not going to let our parents, if we can help it, you know, live under a bridge I think the best thing is to prepare like you would for any other sort of expense. If you know that there's going to be a college expense in your life and the tuition's 1500 bucks a month, you better figure out a way to live on $1,500 a month less. 
And the sooner that you can figure out how to do that, the better. Now, the reality is, is that assuming that dad has worked for his entire life, and it sounds like he has, you know, he'll be getting some income, you know, some Social Security income at least. Who knows how much that'll be? But a lot of this stuff, if, if you're looking at it from the perspective of like bringing someone else into your household, there's not a whole bunch of extra costs associated with that. You know, there's extra costs for certainly consumption, food, water, utilities to some degree, but it's not it's not a ton more. You know, little things you can do to save money. You know, you can share the same cell phone plan. We pay for my parents' cell phones. And it dawned on me that we were paying this gigantic bill to Verizon. And I'm like, why don't we just have them be on our plan? It's 20 bucks more a month. You know, so that saved, you know, $100 a month, basically. So there's a lot of opportunity for efficiency in there as you start picking up expenses for other people that you care about. And then the last little bit of of information that I can share is, you know, when people are used to being really tight with money. So let's say that dad retires, he's getting his Social Security, it's 2000 bucks a month, and that's all there is. If you can add 200 bucks to that pot, so to speak, you just increased his income by 10%. And maybe $200 is not a lot of money to you. Maybe $500 isn't a lot on a monthly basis. But just remember that you can't compare your current lifestyle to theirs because they're quite often not the same. You know, your budget might be $10,000 a month. That's your living expenses for all of your family stuff. And if you kick another 200 to somebody or 400 to somebody who is living on $2,000 a month, that's a really big difference. Anyways, I, I'm just kind of rambling here, I guess, a little bit, but I'm good at that. Well, I think a couple of resources, because this is really an emotionally charged topic. I think it's difficult for people, even though a bunch of us tried on the uh, Facebook page and, and OG, you're trying here without knowing the personalities. I mean, a lot of this OG too is personality driven. So Cameron Huddleston came on the show. She wrote a fantastic book called Mom and Dad, We Need to Talk, which is about having these conversations, how to have them. I think more importantly, how not to have them. I think OG, a big thing here is how not to have it, don't you? Well, yeah. And the reality is, is that, again, you're not going to convince them. Listen, people who get to be 60 years old, it's not lost on them that they don't have any money. You going, hey, you need to be doing this is not going to engender a lot of goodwill. They get it. They understand. You don't need to shame them into it. Hey, thanks to Jason for uh, bringing that to our community. By the way, if you want to hang out with the entire Stacky Benjamins team throughout the week and a lot of our friends hang out there, it is such a good time. You have to... You have to like a lot of bad dad jokes along with your money talk. We, we don't talk uh, big time economics. We do not talk uh, politics. One of the few places I found <laughs> online where we just don't do any of that. Mom demands that we do none of that. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash basement. And that'll take you to the Facebook group. You uh, click the button, answer a few questions to make sure that you're not some robot wanting to spam all of our friends and uh, Gertrude, mom's friend Gertrude, will uh, open the door and let you in. All right, that's going to do for today. Hey, big thanks. A lot of people to thank here. I mentioned on Monday our thanks to the Westwood One team. Today, I'd like to thank people that leave us a review of this here show because just taking that little bit of extra time to tell people what they're getting into when they listen to Stacking Benjamins does take some time. And it doesn't have to be super long. Uh, five stars from J. Chris Sean just says my favorite financial podcast, period. Five stars. That's it. Mom is very proud of that one today. Thank you so much for taking the time to 
leave us a review. All right, that's going to do it. Doug, you've got it from here, man. What should we have learned today? Yep, I got it, Joe. First, take a lesson from our headlines. You are never truly in control of your credit card rates or limits, so avoid relying on credit cards to fund your lifestyle at all costs. Second, take a lesson from Phil Town. Thinking about trading? Maybe beginning with a plan and working that plan is the way to invest for the future. Not asking about what's hot or not. But the big takeaway? Don't ever try to do something nice for these jokers, like a a good old-fashioned possum dinner. Not only do they try to accuse me of poisoning them, uh, apparently a few bad apple possums get rabies. I mean, who knew? It could happen to anybody, really. But they said the possum recipe isn't good. Possum recipe's not good. It's impossible. I shouldn't be surprised, though. I mean, not many people have the sophisticated palais like uh, like I do, like moi. Special thanks to Phil Town for joining us while social distancing. You'll find all of Phil's information at rule1investing.com or on our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. Phil also has a podcast called InvestEd, and you can find that where all the finer podcasts are distributed. This show is created by Joe Saul Seahide, produced by Taylor Stevens, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I'm pretty much the guy in charge of everything around here. Trust me, this well-oiled machine didn't get like this all by itself. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remunerations. That's a big word. There's no way you take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. And before making any financial decisions, consult with a real financial advisor. Okay, I mentioned earlier that I was going to tell a story, and I don't remember what that is. So when it, when I go back to listen to this and clean it up, we'll, we'll figure out what story it was. And if it, apparently it wasn't worth it, OG, because I don't remember. But it is amazing what you find yourself doing when you're huddled at home. And I want to tell you one thing I've been doing lately. I, I'm a big baseball fan, and I found a baseball simulation game. No baseball on TV, so... I decided to uh, do this simulation. It's called Out of the Park Baseball. You make yourself a manager and a general manager of a team. 
And of course, being a Detroit Tigers guy, I decided that I would manage the Detroit Tigers. This game isn't a game. I got completely fooled by the game. This is a full-time job because not only do I control ticket prices at the stadium, I also make all the trades. I bring guys up and down from the minors during every game. I call plays. I don't do the batting and I'm constantly swearing at my guys, but I also get directions from the owner. So Chris Illich, the owner of the Detroit Tigers wrote me at the beginning of the season. And what's hilarious is how realistic this game is. Because for people that aren't baseball fans, the Detroit Tigers have been horrible, just absolutely horrible. And my game opens up with an email from Chris Illich. You know what it said? My job for this year, OG, is, and I quote from the game, just don't completely suck. It's like the uh, tagline for the podcast. I, I, got, I, got that, I got that email and I thought, man, that's, that, that is just truth. That is my goal. If you're managing the Tigers, I just don't want to. Completely suck. And so immediately I realized that I've got all these issues. Talk about money issues. The reason I bring this up is because I've got money issues. So I've got $4 million that I can spend on free agents, which for you and I, that is a ton of money for MLB. That's not a bunch. I fire my pitching coach to get a better one who works great with young pitchers. Cause I have to go young and develop a team. I try to trade my top guy who makes $20 million a year And this is me screaming at my computer, OG. Why are we paying baseball players $20 million a year? That's amazing. And especially when I'm the GM. So I tried to trade him to the New York Mets, who, by the way, way better team this year. We're going to be a better team this year than Detroit was going to be. Chance of winning. And guess what Miguel Cabrera does? He enacts his no trade clause. I can't trade him. He gets to stay. He gets to stay. Why do you want to stay with my crappy team? They're costing me $20 million a year. The dudes playing next to him are making five, what, what's league minimum? Like 525? Uh, I, I got guys all over my infield making 525,000. He's making, I, I could hire 40 of these dudes. Anyway, my team is four and six. Yeah, just under 500. Not terrible. There's this stat that Steam, Steam's the engine that runs the games and it t- on your computer and it tells you how long you've been playing. I've owned the game two weeks, 30 hours. (laughs) It's a full-time job. I have to stop. I have to stop. It's not good. Out of the park baseball. Actually, it is really good. It's a, if, if, listen, if you're missing baseball and you really want into some of that nitty gritty, I've made a couple trades. I got hoodwinked. I trade my closer. You know, I trade my closer. He was the best player on my team. Copies for closers. Dude, I'm the Detroit Tigers. You know how often he was playing? How many games does my closer get to close? Joe Jimenez was not closing any games because my team sucks. I had been in, I had been in nine games and I got to use him once. So I thought I'm going to trade him for a couple guys that can get in the game. Listen, if, if, if I'm lucky enough to be in a game in the ninth inning, I will figure it out, but I got to get to that point where I'm in, I'm in more games in the ninth inning. So I went to trade him for a good relief pitcher, just a regular relief pitcher and for a, a new shortstop, Jordy Mercer. Good with the bat, total liability at shortstop. The number of of times he just lets the thing go through his legs is just absolutely horrible. And by the way, Castellanos in right field, maybe the best player on my team, even in right field, he's so slow to get the ball. I've had so many base hits to right field. It just, but every time he comes up to bat, the dude's gold. Anyway, so, so I trade. DH, dude. 
I trade this. That's what I need to do. I, I, I trade him for two younger guys. And then I find out this game has a little bit of a fog of war. Neither of these guys, when they get on my team is as good as my scouting organization thought they were. So <laughs> I totally get hosed on this trade. Anyway, that's how you feel. Coronavirus time. I'm going outside and exercising, but you do that. That sounds way better. Oh, I've been doing that too. I'm doing this race across Tennessee. My legs are killing me over. You know how hard it is to go over five miles every single day? Uh, I do. Cause when I do my after school activity, you sometimes are, I'll do that like, like three days in a row. You wear like a Fitbit and see how many miles you logged. Yeah. Yeah. It works out to be about, it depends, but it's probably around six miles yeah. a day. Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Yeah. So by the time Sunday rolls around, I can't, I can't move. No, we'll try to walk and run. What I like to do is uh, walk three and run four and get in seven in the day. So I can take a day off every once in a while. Uh, today, I'm just going to walk three. In fact, here, as soon as we're finished recording, I'm going to go out and walk three with Cheryl, but, uh, but good times. Sounds fun. Have a good walk. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning Because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and best careers for military spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate, and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.